Um, but I'm glad it shouldn't happen for me. It should happen for you. Um, so Ashley, uh, Ashley is our deacon of children's ministries. Or is that the title? I don't. Yeah, there you go. And um, what I love about Ash is that she has a heart for our kids, and it's a big heart. It's a big beating heart. And um, one of the things that we talked about last year was that we wanted to bring just a gospel-centered curriculum. We want kids to be learning about the cross. Okay, that's the goal here. We want them to learn about Christ, him crucified, their sin, all of that really horrible stuff that we believe kids should be um, learning from a young age. And so we found this great curriculum called Gospel Project. And uh, Ash was the one that grabbed a hold of it and learned it and studied it. And now she is, uh, she is teaching it to, uh, to uh, future teachers and leaders that want to lead our kids through it. So I wanted Ash just to tell you a little bit about her heart uh, for, for our ministry to our kids and with the Gospel Project. So lay out a little bit of the vision that you have, please. Yeah, absolutely. So really when we look at children's ministry, um, really, it, it comes back to what it is. Children's ministry, in essence, is evangelism. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think that we have a tendency as a church, not, not just talking substance, but globally, worldwide, to view children's ministry as childcare. If I can just say that, you know, let's drop off our kids and they can do their thing while I do our thing, while we do our thing. And, and really, when we're viewing it as that, we're not really having a robust gospel view of, of what the essence of the ministry is, which is really evangelism. You know, kids kids have souls. You know, these, these are tiny, unregenerate hearts that we have the opportunity uh, to share the message and the hope of the gospel with, which is really why we have implemented the gospel project is, uh, you know, it shares that heart that, that children's ministry is about evangelism. It's about sharing the gospel with these kids. Yeah, and so we've, uh, it, it's been fun because we started it last September in Ashland. We're getting ready to launch it here in the next month. Um, but there's, yeah, I know you guys should cheer. Yeah. Um, but there's been, there's been some stories that have come out of, of A-Town. So throw one at us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, going back to, to this being about evangelism, um, just to tell you a couple of different age ranges. Um, we have a 6 to 12 room, and we also have a 3 to 5 room and a 0 to 2 room. Um, in our 6 to 12 room, something really exciting happened the other day. Uh, one of our teachers sat down in a small group to discuss the lesson um, with a group of 10-year-olds. And uh, the very first thing that they do when they sit in that small group is they go through what is the gospel. Have you ever heard that word? And one of the girls who has attended our church for a while actually said, you know what? I hear that word all the time. What does it mean? And so what was, what was uh, interesting was about, about that was, you know, we have a tendency as adults to throw that word around um, without maybe... Uh, breaking it down for our kids. So really what that teacher got to do was she got to walk her through step-by-step step what the gospel is and, and what it means for us, the good news that it means for us. And so that was with a 10-year-old. But even exciting things are happening um, in our 3-to-5 class. One of our 3-year-old uh, parents came up to me the other day and she said, you know, I have to tell you, um, Elena has been praying every night, thanking the Lord that he gives us the power to say no to sin. This is a three-year-old. Yeah. I mean, so it's showing that the Lord is doing a work in the hearts of these kids. Um, we have another parent who came and, and texted me the other day saying that they got to have a conversation about idolatry with their son. And um, their son actually identified them as idols at time. And so that has opened up a doorway to talk to them, uh, to talk to their son about the gospel um, and the goodness of Christ and coming. And so, yeah, exciting things have happened. And so when we take it back to children's ministries about evangelism, these are outworkings of, of what evangelism looks like for kids. Yeah, man, I love that. Um, so we have some training coming and when we hear the word training it sounds crazy daunting to some people right because it just makes it sound like what we're diving into is super techie so just really briefly tell them that this training is like like I could do this training right yeah this is simple when we say training what we really want to do is we want to put tools in your hands so it is easy and accessible for you um, and so Betsy Bookwalter and I have been working 
working together to make this accessible for you. So part of that is making it as user-friendly as possible for you is a training. And so um, looking at it without a training is going to seem overwhelming. And so the training, when we say necessary, it's actually a kindness to you. <laughs> so what we want to do is we want to make this accessible for you. We want to make this easy for you to use. And so we're going to have a training on May 11th from 6.30 to 8.30 at the Newsom's house. The Newsom's have really graciously um, opened up uh, their home for us. Child care will be provided. Dinner will be provided. Basically, you should be there. <laughs> yeah. If anything, you should just come and eat, and then yes, you'll learn a little stuff on the side, yeah. right? Yeah. During that training, what we're going to be looking at is really what the Gospel Project is, and also the outworkings of what will it look like here in Substance Worcester when you launch your four to six class. So it, it's if you are interested, if you are a parent, I would highly encourage you to be there, because not only is it going to give training for the people here, but also the thing that I love about the Gospel Project is it puts awesome tools in parents' hands as well when you're discipling your child. It actually sets you up for success. How do you get at your child's heart so you're not getting at behavior modification, but gospel transformation? Mm. How do you ask the right questions? So parents, I would just really implore you to be there. Um, we'll, we'll go over all those things that night. All right. Thanks, Ash. Thank you so much for serving us. Yes. All right. Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Um, we're going to go Mark 6 tonight. This is week 12 in our Mark series. And we're going to be taking kind of a big, long passage uh, tonight. Um, but you want to go to Mark 6. If this is your first time, we go through the English Standard Version. You can use any version you want, but this is the version that I'm going to be uh, reading through and teaching through tonight. So the, the, uh, the passage is Mark 6, if you want to go there. And I'm just going to open us up in a word of prayer, if you bow your heads with me. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reshape our minds right now. Reshape our minds, refocus our hearts to the love, joy, and peace that comes with knowing and being known by Christ. Who we just sang is our everything because we have no good apart from Christ. And so, Lord, as we open your word, let the weight of the truth it contains soften our hearts where necessary so that we see Jesus less dimly and with brighter glory, we pray in Christ's name. And together we said, amen. Well, when we've planted substance, we're going on four years now, when we planted substance, uh, our idea, the big idea behind it, the kind of church that we wanted to plant was a missional church. So when we started out, that was one of the key words that we used. We said we want to plant a, a missional church. And this term missional, it's a term that was coined actually by a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt from uh, the Pacific Northwest. He's a guy that planted a series of churches called Soma Churches actually. And uh, he describes a missional community uh, and since he's the, you know, the godfather of the term, he describes it and defines it as this. A family of missionary servants who make disciples who make disciples. And really all he did with his definition and his, uh, his exploring of this word missional was he took a page from the life of Jesus in that everyday life is seen as being on mission. So it's a movement that therefore says there, there is no separation of church and life. That's really the big idea behind it. So the people are the church. So the church is the life of a people transformed by Jesus to proclaim his salvation. And, and, and ironically enough, this is the life of Jesus in the gospel of Mark as we've been going through these first uh, six chapters. And what we've seen is that everywhere Jesus travels, he's on mission, right? He didn't just live life as a carpenter and then once a year take a trip to China to do some missionary work. Right, that's not what he does. He didn't just hang with his disciples and then tell Judas, their treasurer, to mail their yearly check to the missionary family in Africa that they support. Um, again, all, all good, all necessary things, by the way, so you, don't, you, know, you, don't, you can stop plotting your offended and dramatic exit because we're anti-missions now. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but uh, Jesus didn't go on mission, believe it or not. He lived on mission everywhere he went. 
And that's really what we see as we've been going through Mark. His mission existed at all times, in all places, wherever he was. And this served as a model for his apostles who would go on to do both local and global missions, right? We see that exploding as we get into the book of Acts. And this is how we define the missional life. We actually get it from Scripture. And one of the things, one of the, one of the trademarks that I would argue about the missional life is that it's kind of scary, There's some scary aspects to it. It's saying this in essence. It's saying, I have neighbors who need Jesus, and I care about that more than if they're uh, angry at me because I haven't mowed my lawn in four weeks, right? Um, It's not about being Ned Flanders either, right? It's about having a heart that breaks for people you see as fellow image bearers of Christ, right? It, it's, not, it's not as, you know, seeing them as, as evangelism meat to devour like gospel piranhas. That's not what it's about. And so last week we even talked a little bit about that. One of the questions we posed was this. Does your life make sense to a non-believer? So if a non-believer looks at your life and they look at the flow of the things that you do and the things that you value, it should not make sense to them when they look at the way that you live. It shouldn't make sense to them. And so what we're going to do today, kind of taking off from that concept and furthering that, what we're going to do today is we're going to read five kind of seemingly disconnected stories from March 6, which clue us in to some of the challenges and some of the expectations and some of the joys that come with living what I'm calling the missional life, which is really what we want to embody here at Substance. And the reason... The reason we want to embody that is because we don't see any other alternative lifestyle to live for a follower of Christ when we look in Scripture, right? The missional life is simply the life of Jesus. And the question that we want to pose and we want to answer or we want to be in the process of beginning to think about in our own lives is this. Whose life will we live? Whose life will you live? Because you are living a life. Some of you guys are like, I don't have a life. No, 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 no. You are living a life as a Christian. The question is, is it the life Jesus has changed us to live, that he's called us to live? Now, some of you may have a family background like mine. And uh, if you ever want to look into my family background, I plead that you wouldn't. But you're going to see, uh, man, you're going to see a lot of things. If you were able to get a snapshot into my family past, you're going to see just a fractured history of, of things like alcoholism and and drug abuse and things of that nature, as, as much as 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 well as much more acceptable things, right? Such as you know greed and pleasure seeking and selfish ambition, stuff that we just kind of go, yeah, that's not that bad, right? Um, and this is probably your family too. If you go back far enough, or maybe if you step back like literally a one centimeter, you know, you will see those things, right? And maybe for some of you, you're man, you, you broke that. You broke that chain. You're a first generation Christian in your family, and uh, or maybe. Maybe you're a teenager or maybe you're a, a college student. You're someone who's, who's just floated in and out of church for 30 years and you thought this is just something I do, but you haven't really grasped the idea that this is something that we are instead of something that we do. And the fact that what we do comes out of who we are, right? Because the question again is whose life will you live? What is that life supposed to look like? We can go to church for years and nobody ever tells us what it is to live the life of Christ in the day today. Because here's what it can't be. Okay, it can't just be a nicer, more moral, not as bad version of your family and friends with some church on Sunday sprinkled on top. Maybe even twice a month if, you, if, you have a great, if you're on a great run, right? That's what it can't be. What you got to ask yourself is this, is whose life is most worth living? And we're told, we're commanded, we're given more than just a snapshot. Man. We're given a panoramic view of what it is to live an abundant life by submitting ourselves in obedience to Christ. And so this is kind of what I'm going to be digging at tonight is this, is that the missional life is a life of calling, cost, compassion, trust, and faithfulness. And so we have a long passage, like I said, but we are just going to step through it piece by piece, and we're going to see what the gospel of Mark tells us about this life that Jesus lived and that he brought his disciples into 
to learn how to be and how to live. So let's pick up in verse 7. And it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's just stop right there for now. So what we're looking at here is that Jesus calls his 12 apostles to himself and he sends them out in pairs. The reason he sends them out in pairs is so that his testimony might be established with two or three witnesses, which is a pattern that you see all the way through scripture, even going all the way back to the Old Testament in books like Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, God sets up two or more people to establish a proven and truthful witness about himself. And what does he do? Well, he gives authority. He gives them authority to preach and to cast out demons and to heal the sick. What Jesus was doing was he was making good on his promise, like we read in the first chapter, to make these boys fishers of men. So he's putting that into practice right now with them. It wasn't a case of, hey, you know what, fellas, I just want you to stay close to me and watch me work because, you know, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Now, like if anybody could have said that, it would have been Jesus. And when you look at these disciples, you kind of think, well, why didn't you do that? But he, but he doesn't do that. And that should be encouraging to us. But the mission of Jesus is a sending mission. And then in verse 8, he even gives them some specific instructions as to what they were to bring. Which wasn't a heck of a whole lot when you look at sort of the list he hands them, right? It's like, Jesus, are we going on mission or preparing for the latest episode of Survivor here? Right? That's kind of how it looks. But what Jesus was doing in this was he was forcing them to put all of their reliance on him, on God, to supply all their needs. So he says, no bread, no, bread, no bag, no money, just sandals, no change of clothing. And when you get into a town, I want you to just stay at the house and the people that are providing you the hospitality. And he was saying that as a way to saying, hey, when you get to a town and you have people serving you and showing you gracious hospitality, this is not about, as you get more well-known, taking something better and taking something more refined and taking something that's a little more comfortable. He wanted them to be faithful in whatever the setting that God provided them for in the town that they were rolling into. So again, he's calling them to rely solely and fully on God. And then he says in verse 11, look, by the way, if the people don't listen, man, you get there and you're preaching the word and you're, you're attempting to, to stand on the gospel, you're attempting to preach repentance. If they don't listen, shake the dust off your feet is what he says. And what this was really was an old school practice for Jews for when they traveled out of Gentile territories, so they may have been traveling in Gentile territories, they travel out of them, and what they were supposed to do was shake off the defilement that they believed came from a godless people before re-entering into their land, before re-entering into Israel. And what it was meant to symbolize was God's judgment against godless nations. So that's what he calls his disciples to do. And that's what we understand the first part of living a missional life is. It's a life of calling, right? And calling kind of scares us. Man, I've always been scared of that word, calling. It's like, really, like, Martin, you're scared. Like, isn't that what you're doing right now? Yeah, I'm scared. That word kind of gets me a little scared when we talk about calling. But the call, the call is also a joyous, thrilling call, Right? I mean, have you guys ever, like, gotten that call that's changed your life? That call that you, maybe you don't, okay, the text that you've been waiting for to change your life. By the way, phone calls are those things when you hit the buttons and you put the phone up to your ear and then you actually have, a, like, a vocal, audible conversation. Um, I haven't had one of those in a long time, but I remember what I used to do with those. But we've all experienced that, that message, that call that we've had that would change your life. You got the job, right? Or you got that first date. I just had a friend... Uh, who, had a who has a daughter, and they, they applied to Georgetown University. And uh, Georgetown University, um, it's a cheap school. It only costs 72 grand a, a, a year to attend. And, uh, you know, my buddy's loaded, but not that loaded. And uh, so they just, they just kind of threw out the app and didn't expect much. And they got a letter back saying, 
uh, we are going to uh, unfortunately only be able to cover 69 of that 72,000 a year. So I, I hope you guys are able to, uh, to still, you know, kind of, uh, you know, enroll. And they're like, absolutely not. It's either all or no. They, so obviously they, they went, they, I mean, they were overjoyed. It was like, we've been accepted. It's the call. They were thrilled. My buddy calls me and he's like, he's crying. He's so happy for his daughter. Jesus called you. Think about that. Let that sink in. The creator of lights and planets and galaxies and atmospheres and oceans and forests and animals and double cheeseburgers called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's a real thing. And then you know what he does? After he does that, he sends you out. I mean, don't, don't miss the overwhelmingness of that. The awe and the wonder and the joy of knowing God called you. You. You, of all people, me, of all people. It's almost unfathomable. He called us to declare his salvation. That's the missional life. That's the call. You were once, all of you, all of us, at one time, we were God's mission. So what did he do? He sends Jesus. Then he calls us, and then he sends us on the same mission that he sent his own son on. So Jesus calls his apostle to be extensions of his ministry. And then verse 21, it says, they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. Which also mirrors the message, by the way, that John the Baptist started preaching all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4. Now, you guys remember John the Baptist? Like, we just barely touched on this guy. Like, what happened to JTB? Right? It's like Jesus comes on the scene in chapter 1, gets baptized by John, and then, then the guy just goes like, MIA. It's like, where's John? Which is kind of uh, what it feels like as we're reading through Mark's gospel here. But what he does is he gives us a little backstory about what happened to John the Baptist as we pick up in verse 17, which brings us into the cost, the risk of the missional life. So let's pick up in verse 14. And it says this King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, let me just stop right there really quick, because what you got to understand is that this whole idea about men being raised from the dead, it usually signified judgment. So when they're talking about, like, this guy being reincarnated as somebody else, everybody's freaking out about that. Everybody's afraid it was a very supernaturalist society. So they believe that if that happened, it was, it was happening because these men were coming back from the dead to judge them. Everybody's a little tentative about those kinds of assertions. Picking up in 17, it says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Verse 18, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, dude. I added that. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and so he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out, and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. A, a really heavy backstory to learn what happened to John the Baptist. So King Herod, this is what happens. He becomes a John the Baptist fanboy. Right? But everything gets complicated when he marries his brother Philip's wife. And John, again, being a guy who was not known for subtlety, all right, calls Herod out on it because this is corrupt leadership. 
This kind, and, and you know what's interesting about this is like you read this and it kind of reads a little bit like a reality TV show from the first century, doesn't it? I mean, it just kind of has that feel. Because Herod's new wife, Herodias, he wants John taken out. Kind of like a scene straight out of, you know, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which obviously none of us have ever seen, um, which is a given. But here's the rub, right? Here's the rub is that Herod fears John the Baptist and considers him a holy and a righteous man. So, to compromise with his sweet, nurturing, murderous wife, Herodias, um, he throws John in prison instead. And so what's happening here is that John is biding his time in prison. While the daughter of Herodias shows up and performs a little, you know, so you think you can dance, you know, routine at the staff party. And Herod, Herod um, kind of likes it a lot, right? So whatever happened, we'll just leave it right there. But Herod's stoked. Herod's stoked with the dance party. Right, And so he shoots his mouth off in front of his guests and says, anything you want is yours up to half the kingdom. Now, I'm saying up to half the kingdom, it's a little hyperbole because obviously he wasn't going to give her half the kingdom. What he's saying is, I'm so pleased with you, I'm going to give you something generous. I'm going to give you a generous gift. So she goes back to tell mom, probably hoping to get her student loans paid off, until mom says, "Um, how about we go with John the Baptist's head on a platter instead? It feels odd, doesn't it? It feels odd. You can see the way absolute power and corruption can take over the hearts of people and harm then the people of God. And Herod is bummed. That's what it shows us. Herod is bummed, but he doesn't want to lose any cred. So he goes against his conscience and has John executed. Now, I'm being a little flippant here because that tends to be my nature, but... Let's not miss the weight of what we're seeing here. Let's not miss the weight of the cost that John the Baptist paid as a very young man for preparing the way of Christ to the cross, right? Because we come to verse 29 and it says that his disciples found him and they laid him in a tomb. And what we learn from this in our own lives, for our own lives, is that the missional life, it comes at a cost. It's a life of risk. And what we see is that John the Baptist was willing to give up everything. He's willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. He doesn't seem to care an iota about his life when he condemns Herod. And remember, Herod is a guy that is liking John. Can you imagine the temptations that John may have had? Saying, man, I got the highest ranking official that digs my sermons. Like, I wonder what kind of resources he would provide for me to grow the church. But he he doesn't do that. That's not the heart of John. He's transfixed instead by the person and the work of Jesus. How can this be? You have to ask that question. How? How is that possible? Think about the risks that we take in life. I mean, you know, most of the time we usually look at other people and say, man, those those are the risk takers. But I think that we all take some risks, right? All of you have taken some risks. You have friends. You have houses and jobs and degrees and cars and hobbies and marriages and kids. It means none of you, technically speaking, are risk averse. The question is, are you taking the most valuable risks? That's the question for us. Because the risk that pays the greatest dividends at the end of your life, regardless of how it goes during it, that's the risk that John the Baptist took. He risked everything. And he didn't risk it on bungee jumping, right? He wasn't dropping cash money on high-risk stocks. That's not what John is doing. He was willing to give up everything to gain everything. That's the cost of the missional life. Because our society is different. Our society says, give up a little to gain a lot if you're lucky. And if everything goes your way. And if you play your cards right. That's the message of our society. The gospel says, no, give up everything and you will gain everything. Luke 18, Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times and more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. That's not prosperity gospel. Jesus is saying there is a cost for this life, but it actually pays out the kind of dividends that produce a heart in you that all those other things are going to strip and take away from you. You know, I was talking to my wife about this story, 
And, uh, man, it always sounds like a tragic end, doesn't it? story of John the Baptist, the way he is beheaded. Except that even John's death, the way we read it, even John's death, it paves the way to Christ, doesn't it? As his body was gathered by his disciples and laid in a tomb in verse 29, we're reminded, we're reminded of how Jesus was unjustly accused, how he was condemned by Pontius Pilate, who was another Roman official that betrayed his own conscience and allowed innocent blood to be shed rather than risk his reputation. So the missional life is a life of risk. But the price that John the Baptist paid, was it in vain? It wasn't in vain. As his testimony to the power and truth of the gospel, it's influencing our hearts even now to read about this. So that's the missional life. It's a life of calling. It's a life of cost. It's also a life of compassion. Let's go to verse 30, and we'll continue with the third story of this narrative. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns uh, to get there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, we have five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. Verse 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So the disciples return from their missions and these brothers are shot. They're tired. They need to rest. They need to retreat. And Jesus is like, let's get out of Dodge. Let's go on a retreat and let's get you boys some R&R. Okay. But it all goes south when the people catch wind where they're going and run ahead of them. So instead of getting some time away, they're greeted by a great crowd in verse 34, which could have, by the way, been anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people. It's like the crowd we had on Easter, almost. It's out of control. It's a lot of people, right? What's significant about this is that when Jesus sees them, what does it say? It says he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Which, again, this this whole idea of a shepherd with the sheep, um, we read a lot about that as we go through Old Testament scripture. We even read about it in the sense of how we think of Moses leading his people out of Egypt to shepherd the people, to care for their souls. So that's the image we get of a shepherd looking at the sheep who are running and they're scattered and they need someone to pull them in, to rein them in, to care for them. And look, Jesus, he's not ignorant. He knows how worn out his boys are. But his heart goes out to this wandering and worn out people. He sees them as they are. Not as a nuisance, but as people who are lost without him. So He begins to teach them. But here's what's interesting is that his compassion doesn't stop there, as we see in verse 35. Now remember, the disciples are exhausted, so it was a reasonable and even a compassionate thing for them to say, Jesus, look, it's late. Can we just send them away so that they can go find some food to eat? But Jesus has something else in mind. He wants to give his disciples, listen, another glimpse into his glory. He wants them to understand that the missional life that he's calling them to live is one of calling and cost, but also one of compassion and one of care. Because here's the thing, and this applies to us right now. We can go through the motions, man. All right? We can attend church. We can go to community groups. We can serve the church in the communities in various ways. We can care for the poor. We can reach into our neighborhoods. But we can still lack the compassionate heart of Jesus as our motivation behind it all. 
But Jesus looks at them in verse 37, and this is what he says to these tired, worn-out dudes that just got back from doing quite a bit of ministry. He says, you give them something to eat. You serve them, is what he's saying. He's saying, I've given them food for their soul, now let's give them food for their body. And in fact, to ignore someone's physical needs, that can be a denial of the gospel that we do preach to them. So this is why we see this holistic approach to Jesus. But of course, the disciples, even after all the miracles Jesus has done, man, what do they do? Man, they break out their MacBooks, their Excel spreadsheets, and are like, there's no way we can afford to feed this many people. That's a lot of number three value meals, Jesus. Like, let's be honest about that. But what does he do? Well, he sends them to gather what food they did have, five loaves and two fish, seats everybody in groups on the green grass, prays what was most likely a prayer of thanksgiving for that time, and the people eat until they are satisfied. There's an abundance. There's food left over. So what's the message here with this particular, with this particular passage? Is it that God takes what little we have and gives us more if we just have enough faith? I mean, there, there's nobody here that hasn't heard this passage preached that way, Right? Man, if you just take what little you have, offer it to God, have some faith, and he's going to just expand. He's going to bless. There's going to be abundance if you just have enough faith. You know what the problem is with that analogy for this story? There was no faith here. There was no faith. There is Jesus moved with compassion, feeding those who are hungry. It's a picture of the good shepherd who provides for his people what his people can't provide for themselves. You know what it ultimately is? It's ultimately a picture of the cross where the compassion of Jesus reaches its ultimate consummation. And again, Mark doesn't provide any clue for how the crowds or the disciples reacted to this miracle, but we'll actually get some insight into that in a minute, into the disciples' hearts as we pick up in verse 45. And this is what it says. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the missional life is a life of calling. It's a life of cost. It's a life of compassion. It's also a life of trust. Jesus sends the disciples back across the water while he stays behind, while he prays. And once again, they encounter another windstorm. I'm telling you, it feels like every time they get in that boat, man, you know what I mean? Every time they get in that boat, Jesus performs another miracle. He takes a little brisk walk on the surface of the water at around 4 a.m., which would have been the fourth watch of the night. Now, this sounds amazing to us, right? And, and it is. It is amazing. But... He did just feed 15,000 people with five foot-long subs, right, and some fish sticks. He did just do that, right? But when the disciples see him, they think he's a ghost. Now, let's not be too hard on the disciples, okay? Sometimes we just think, oh, my gosh, they're what, what fools, what idiots. But let's be honest. If you saw someone walking towards you on the surface of the ocean in the middle of the night, like your first thought would probably not be, oh, it's... Probably just Jesus, keep rowing, fellas. He'll catch up to us, right? And in fact, the word here for ghost can also be translated as demon. And so back then, uh, in this ancient culture, there's a lot of superstition regarding the ocean in those times. So there was a lot of ways that people got worked up and had a lot of superstitions about the water. So their first issue here in this particular moment is fear. They're fearful. The second issue was that when Jesus got in the boat and calmed the storm, it says that they were utterly astounded that he was able to calm the wind. They were astounded that he had lordship over the elements. Now, again, this astonished reaction was actually held against them. It's portrayed here in Mark as a negative, and that's because the astonishment, it was rooted in a hard-heartedness, it says. And again, because we don't, we don't really read about any astonishment over, 
over hearts being saved by the gospel. It doesn't show that the disciples were astonished by that. Or about demons being cast out. Or about sick people being healed. Or about feeding 15,000 men, women, and children. But when Jesus enters the boat and the wind ceases, now they're freaked out again. And it says in verse 52 that they were utterly astounded because they didn't understand about what he had just done with the loaves. Because their hearts were hard. Well, what does that mean? Because it's an odd passage, isn't it? What does it mean? Well, it means that they failed to comprehend. They were continuing to fail to comprehend who exactly Jesus was. Their shock was related to a lack of belief in understanding the work and the mission of Jesus. The power and the authority that he held as God in the flesh. And what we learn from this is that the missional life as seen here with these disciples is that it, it takes us to scary places, right? It leads us to places so that we believe who was Lord over those scary places. Man, think about the Israelites being called out of Egypt. Think about somebody like Matthew who Jesus called out of profitable government work to follow him. That's scary. Think about Paul leaving his job as a Pharisee to go get in with the group of people that he was formerly trying to murder. Kind of scary, right? Think about Gideon from the Old Testament. This scaredy cat hiding out, beating wheat in a wine press until God visits him and says, hey, I just, uh, you know, if you got a few minutes, I would like you to deliver Israel from oppression. Kind of scary. Remember Esther? Esther was called to be the queen of a pagan king so that God could use her to deliver his people from the destruction that people were plotting against the nation of Israel. All scary moves. All scary moves. So we have to ask this question then when we read about things like this is why should we ever trust God? Do you ever ask yourself that? Why should you trust God? Here's why. Here's what this account tells us. Because our entire lives are making painful headway. And you know what? We want and we need Jesus in the boat with us. Interesting that the disciples didn't turn the boat around. Jesus got in the boat with them. Man, that's significant, isn't it? The missional life requires trusting in a God you can't see, who will give you courage you don't have, to speak words you don't know to people who won't like you many times. And there's scariness in that. And there is fear that exists in that. But who is in the boat with us? It's Jesus. Because our lives, our lives are facing the wind many times. Living the missional life is about trusting in the life of the mission who is Jesus what the disciples were learning in all of this was, was faithfulness. And that's what we see when we look in verse 53. Which says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and, mo- and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So Jesus continues the mission. Here's the model he's giving to his disciples. He continues the mission by faithfully traveling through the villages, cities, and countrysides. And when the sick touch even the edge of his garment, they're made well. And what the disciples are seeing here is they're seeing the faithfulness of Jesus. They're seeing the uncompromising and the unstoppable missional diligence of his life to keep going through lack of rest, through needy people, through dangerous environments, and through potential death. That's what they got from seeing, from being with Jesus. And so it's interesting, we have these five sort of disconnected stories that actually, as we see, are are interconnected. When you consider what's happening in the life of these men that God called from all different walks of life. Because what we're seeing here is a rehearsal. We're seeing Jesus running them through a preparation and a transformation for the great commission that was about to take place in their life very shortly. So here's the question that I want to end with, okay? Here's the question. What's compelling about this for you, for us? Why is this compelling? 
When we read about these men that are living and are in process through this missional life, why would these men give up their lives for this life? What made these men eventually willing to die rather than return to their old, safer lives? It has to be that at some point they embraced and believed the truth that Jesus told them concerning their life. When you go to Matthew 10, you hear Jesus say things like this, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And I loved it when bald guys preach this because they could always make a joke right now, but I'm not quite there yet, so forgive me for that. He says, fear not, therefore, and here's the part, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's Jesus telling them something about their life and the heart that Christ has for their life. And then he says in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he's not just, he's not just giving us some scary principles to, to sort of try to work out in our minds, right, when we're freaked out. He's, telling, he's giving us a life to live because this is what he says. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a design for life right there that Jesus gives us. Because at some point, at some point, not right now, not right in this part of the text in the Gospel of Mark, but at some point this became real and true for the disciples. Those words became real and true for them. Because listen, how else do we explain what happened to them later? How else do you explain this? How do you explain Peter in Acts 5 rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ? How do you explain Paul and Silas in Acts 16 locked in prison singing hymns to God while facing potential execution? How do you explain that? How do you explain Stephen, the very first martyr, risking his life in Acts 7 after he was arrested and brought before the council and says crazy things like this, you stiff-necked people, I'm circumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Where did he get the boldness? How do you explain that? How could Paul say in Acts 20, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Or in Acts 21 when Paul says, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. How do you explain that? What I think we see is that these men didn't devalue their life, okay? That's not the message. These were not men who devalued their life, but revalued their lives as God reshaped them through living the missional life that he brought them through, which was obedience. When we overvalue our lives to the point that the driving force is simply to fulfill our dreams, to create the most comfortable and pleasurable environments, you know what happens? It always backfires on us. It always backfires. The apostles were willing to give that up. And in return, they found something so compelling and so worthwhile that they never returned to their old lives. How do you explain that? It was living life for Jesus by giving their life away to others. This was the discovery. That was the secret to the most fulfilling life. And again, it's contrary, isn't it? It's contrary to the way your heart is sinking into your gut right now. Right? Well, Ronnie, you're describing the life of a pastor. You're talking about you, guys like you, guys like Jeff. This is who you're describing right now. I'm not a man of the cloth. I don't want to die. I don't want to sacrifice like those disciples. Neither did the disciples. These were not brothers that wanted to dive into all of that during this time that we're reading about all of their unbelief and their progressive level of freakouts. Neither did the disciples, but something changed. They revalued their life at some point. 
When you get to the book of Acts, something had changed. There was a different value now in place. Man, some of you, you're, you're not called to full-time vocational ministry. You're not called to preach the gospel. You're not called to equip the saints the way we see people involved in ministry do that. But all of you are called to live on mission. And the disciples embraced this life because they saw that it was designed by God, listen, as the path to seeing God's glory. And in fact, when we read in Acts 7, back to the story of Stephen, when the council revolts against Stephen, when they say what you're saying to us is outrageous, when they revolt against Stephen and they prepare to stone him, it says this, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Whose life is most worth living? Whose glory will you seek? Will you revalue your life today? Believing that the life of Jesus, that these obscenely flawed men embraced was the path to joy and happiness that ends one day in seeing the glory of God as you stand face to face with Jesus. Will you ask that question of yourself? Whose life will you live? Whose glory will you seek? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words of truth. We thank you for giving us such a clear understanding of what it means to live a missional life, what it means to follow down the path of Jesus, a path that leads us to the glory of God, a path that leads us into greater joy and greater happiness. Lord, let us obey you Lord, let us look at our lives and revalue the things that we have placed so much importance on. The paths in our life that we are on that are crooked paths that lead us into chaos and confusion and discontentedness. Lord, let us be a bold, courageous people that repents of not living the life that you have called us to live, but remembering that you are with us remembering the compassion that you continue to have on us, even as we are in process. The disciples were in process of all these things, and you are patient with us. So thank you for your patience, Lord, as you call us to live the life that exists for your glory and our joy on mission, Lord, to see people come to know the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would compel us, that you would convict us, that we would be a church that is reflective of this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to close with a song. Uh, and then Jeff Powell is actually going to...